welcome to the Proelium, which means the battle. The Joshua Lectures are an extension of New Antioch's classical education model. The intent of these lectures is to expose a larger audience to the understanding of the Lordship of Christ over all spheres of life. These lectures aim to address various topics within the disciplines of theology, philosophy, education, medicine, law, and ethics. Classical education engages these topics in a robust manner with an eye upon the cultural landscape and a mind transformed by the scriptures. For a reformation of today's vocations and institutions, Christians must be courageous and equipped to evoke real change for Christ. To be courageous without being equipped leads to defeat. To be equipped without possessing courage leads to disaster. New Antioch extends an invitation to you to come and experience these lectures in person. Each presenter approaches their topic with a substantial background of experience and or formal training in their particular discipline and endeavors to provide a careful and rigorous application of the Christian faith to life. Each evening's lectures will afford those in attendance the opportunity to ask questions of the guest lecturer through a moderated Q&A period following the presentation. If you would like more information, please email us at admin at newantiochinstitute.com. Well, it is good to be back with you once again here at the Joshua Lectures, and we are going to be considering in this uh, lecture uh, marriage itself, and we sort of prepared the way for that in our last lecture as we considered uh, attraction and either dating or, uh, uh, or some other method of, um, of coming together, kind of pre-marriage. Uh, leading up into marriage, whatever you want to call that. Um, but I, want, I, I thought I'd start with a quote from a, um, a celebrated book. A, a, a book, in fact, that has won medals called Ella Enchanted. Yes, I'm going to quote from Ella Enchanted. Let me read this to you. Uh, this, this is um, the account of Ella going to a wedding, a giant wedding, not as in a large wedding, but a wedding of giants. And um, she states this, that they, that the, these two, um, okay, sorry, the ceremony takes place in a field and the couple enters holding hands, the bride carrying a sack and the groom a hoe. Both are clothed in trousers and a white smock. They began to plant a row of corn. He prepared the ground and she dropped in seeds from her sack and covered them with moist earth. As they finished, clouds rolled in and a gentle rain fell, although the sky had been clear when their ceremony started. The giants spread their arms and tilted their heads to receive the drops. The giants pantomimed their lives together. They farmed and built a house and brought a series of older and older children from the audience into the imaginary home and then more babies for grandchildren. It ended when they lay down in the grass to signify their deaths together. Then they sprang up. Benches were overturned as giants poured onto the field to hug them, exclaim over the wedding ceremony. 
fascinating sort of um, made-up, contrived fantasy um, cultural ritual here around this uh, this wedding ceremony that uh, that she invents um, for these giants. But what is interesting about it for me is the pantomime of the life and the fact that inherent in the idea of marriage, according to these giants in this fantasy book, is the fact that, uh, that there was going to be children, there will be grandchildren, there's going to be death, and everything was, was part and parcel, uh, pardon the pun perhaps, uh, with this idea of marriage. And I think that that is, is helpful, and one wonders in the current climate if actually we pantomimed life at, at marriages, if maybe we wouldn't be a little further ahead than we are now. Um, I want to suggest to you, as we consider marriage this evening, that, um, that marriage is, uh, yeah, good, come on in. Well, great to have you. I want to suggest to you this evening something perhaps a little bit provocative. Um, and that is that marriage is not an end predominantly, but a means. All right. Um, again, perhaps a provocative statement given how important marriage is. But I will state it again, that marriage is not predominantly an end, but a means. Now. As some very good theologians have noted throughout history, a thing can be a means and an end in relationship to different things. Uh, so they're not mutually exclusive categories. Nevertheless, I want to uh, start our look here at marriage itself by suggesting that marriage is the means to a more important end, namely disciple-making for the glory of God. All right? It is the means of disciple-making for the glory of God. So there's two ways in which I see this, and they function, uh, these two ways, or the, you know, these two things are going to draw on as bookends to Scripture. First, let's take a look at the end of marriage, <laughs> both, uh, both literally and in regards to its purpose. Um, but it says... <clears throat> Well, sorry, it inferred, it inferred its purposes. But in, in Matthew 22, verse 30, Jesus says, in response to the, um, some, some challenges given to him, he says, In the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. In other words, as we consider the the end of all things and the glory of God in a renewed earth under a renewed heavens that we see that marriage is not going to, going to exist. That is, that it is a temporary institution. And it's a temporary institution that will evaporate and give way to the spiritual family, the reality of the spiritual family in which all saints are brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. So as we contemplate the end of things, we see that marriage does not 
exist. At least it does not exist as this exclusive physical relationship. And we're going to get uh, in due time to a definition of marriage. And I have a new triad for you in uh, trying to define the, what marriage is and, and why God instituted it. Um, so, but at the end, marriage disappears. I expect, just uh, saying one further thing about this before we get to the beginning of the story, uh, I suspect that in heaven, uh, that is, when I say that I mean on the, on the renewed earth, uh, that my wife will be my best friend, my best sister in Christ. Uh, nevertheless, she will not be uh, my wife in that relationship that we currently have, which is defined uh, physically, as I'll mention uh, momentarily. Let's take a look at the beginning, though, of the story. Turn with me to the book of Genesis. Genesis, and we will, uh, I'll make a few remarks here from Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. Of course, Genesis chapter 2 is, um, is, is often the place that theologians will go when it comes to defining marriage, and rightly so. Um, we see that woman is created out of man and for man, brought to man by God. And then the passage I read in the last lecture, uh, verses 23 to 25, I'll read it again. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And our Lord Jesus quotes from this passage um, a number of times in reference to marriage. But what I want you to note is to go back to Genesis 1 and understand that prior to this institution of marriage, you have the dominion mandate which certainly assumes marriage, but it is not explicitly so. And as we read the Bible, it is so important that we take its narrative in its context as it comes, and we, we discern meaning as we read the scripture. So for instance, in Genesis 1, I've read this passage a number of times already in this lecture series, but in chapter 1, Verses 27 and following, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so what you have here at the inception of male and female is this, um, this mandate this, this job, that this assignment that God gives them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, etc. Here's what I want you to understand. That that mandate to multiply comes prior, narratively, to explaining marriage. All right? Now, it infers marriage. Certainly, God didn't plan for this apart from marriage. But... The job of male and female is, is this. This is the primary thing. And marriage is the means by which this gets carried out. All right? So when you come to chapter 2, again, it's important to read it, the, the narrative as it, as it comes, as it flows. And when you get to chapter 2, verse 18, and God says um, about man and, and without, you know, Eve's not made yet. 
not created yet. He says, it is not good that the man should be alone. It's important that we understand this in light of what has already been revealed in chapter 1. The point is not predominantly that here is a lonely creature that needs a companion. All right? Now, there, there's part of that in what is said here. All right? Nevertheless, the, the predominating idea here is that man has been given an assignment and he cannot carry it out without woman. All right? And of course, we've, we've unfolded a little bit about how uh, the image of God is, uh, requires male and female because he did not create one alone to fully and comprehensively image himself in the world. But just, of course, very functionally, uh, you need male and female in marriage, in that sexual union, that sexual relationship to go forth and multiply and fill the earth, etc. Um, so it is clear both at the beginning of the story of creation, at the end of redemption, that marriage is a means. And this tells us a lot about marriage, uh, this disciple-making aspect of it, that prior to the fall of man, right, this is, this is crucial, you cannot understand marriage, you cannot understand the church without this. Prior to the fall of man, the only way that God's kingdom expanded, that his, that his glory would come to fill the earth, would be by male and female having children. Now, of course, now, after the fall, God's glory is also, uh, also grows in the world and, and, and the kingdom of Christ is built and as, as people who are not saved come into the kingdom. But the, the first way, again, prior to the fall, that, that the Lord's kingdom would expand was through uh, male and female in marriage, having children, teaching them about the Lord Jesus Christ, and them growing up in the fear and admonition of the Lord, spreading this glory as they, they, they built societies and, and cities and cultures and developed uh, this world for the glory of God. So, this is the important the, the crucial part of marriage, and it, um, it gives purposes to marriage today. And in fact, we see this in, in other places in the scriptures as well. Uh, so for instance, when, um, when God comes to Abraham to reveal that he is about to come down and wipe out Sodom and Gomorrah, this is Genesis chapter 18, um, he, he sort of takes counsel with himself and he, and he, and he says to, say, to himself, well, should I reveal to Abraham what I am going to do? Uh, and then he says, for I've chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. So what's the reason that God has chosen Abraham? Well, it's not just Abraham, it's his children after him. Similarly, turn with me to Malachi chapter 2, verse 14, if you have your Bibles. Malachi 2, 14 and 15. And this is probably one of the, um, I think one of the most crucial passages in, uh, yeah, in the Bible about marriage. 
Um, Israel had not been faithful. Many of the men were divorcing their wives. Um, and we read in Malachi 2, 14 to 15, But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. All right. So what is, one, what is God seeking through marriage? Godly offspring. That's, that's what he desires from marriage. That's what he desires from marriage. Now, what I want to suggest to you, based on Malachi 2, 14 and 15, and, uh, and some other passages as well, is that there is a triad here that defines and explains marriage. You might even be able to pull it out yourselves just by looking at Malachi 2, 14 and 15. In fact, maybe I'll just take a second just to, just to let you take a quick look at it and see if you can see uh, what that triad might be. Where you don't have to say it out loud, but, uh, but just take a quick look for yourself. So first of all, the upward aspect, the Godward as aspect, the primary part of the triad is the idea of covenant. Covenant, all right? The Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth. She is your companion and your wife by covenant. Um, the idea of covenant is, a, uh, is an agreement. Uh, and, and the way that word covenant is used in scripture is usually in a very holy sense, sacramental sense, or uh, yeah, sacred sense. All right, so covenant is the first part of what defines marriage. It is an agreement, and I'm going to break this down a little bit further in a minute. Because <clears throat> so I think there's probably a sub-triad there that's helpful as well. The second part of the triad is this idea of their union. Right? Did he not make them one with a, with a portion of their spirit in their union? So you have a one flesh union. Right? And it is, if it's not clear already to you, this means a sexual union. Um, there are a lot of ways in which our world gets marriage wrong, but one of the ways they do not get it wrong uh, is, is by emphasizing uh, sexual relationship in the marriage. That, that is inherent in what marriage is. All right? It is a sexual union. It must be a sexual union. And then lastly, you have this aspect of what was the one God seeking? Well, godly offspring. All right? Godly offspring. So, um, trying to think. Yeah, is there a here we go. So um, the way I've broken this down is, first of all, covenant, second of all, one flesh relationship, and third, family, if you will, um, or you could, you could put procreation. Um, let me suggest a few other things about this triad that I think may be helpful. First of all, um, as with these triads, as we have broken them down, the first part of the triad is always kind of the normative one. Um, it's the one upon which everything else functions and turns, so this idea of covenant, an agreement. 
um, let me suggest to you kind of a sub-triad that, um, that this covenant functions several ways. First of all, it functions as a covenant with God. And that's actually explicit in Malachi 2.14. The Lord was witness, right? So God is watching. And it doesn't matter whether this kind of covenant takes place in a church building or not. God is watching when people make marital agreements. He is witness uh, of, these, of these covenants. Second of all, the covenant is between, you see this, between you and the wife of your youth. Um, and then lastly, it is a covenant that's recognized in society. Right? Um, and there is, I believe there is uh, an extremely important role that the state has in recognizing and promoting marriage. It's always been this way. Um, in any kind of civil, um, remotely advanced society, um, Plato in his last in his last work, which was Laws, he argued that uh, marriage should be the first law of the state. It should be the first law of the state. And the reason it should be the first law of the state is because marriage is what determines existence. All right? Um, let's, well, let, let's just hold that thought for a, a couple minutes because I'm going to come back to that under the third part of the triad. So you've got You've got covenant, a covenant with God, a covenant uh, one with, with one another in marriage, and a covenant that's recognized by the world. Um, upward, inward, outward. Um, as I mentioned, the, this, the, the union is it's mentioned to be a one flesh union. So this, this same triad functions in Genesis chapter 2. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, there's the idea of covenant, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Later on, you get the idea of children, uh, although it's, as I mentioned, it's already been mentioned in Genesis chapter 1. Um, let's come back to this idea of, um, of procreation and godly offspring. Um, because this is, an, this is an interesting one in terms of our current cultural climate. On one hand, marriage has always, throughout history, has always been defined in relationship to children. There are very few exceptions to this. To this. Plato, uh, some of the greatest anthropologists like Westermark throughout history, they've defined um, marriage in relationship to children. In fact, uh, Ed, in fact Edward, Edward Westermark, um, who was a phenomenal anthropologist, that I, I've not read him widely, but I, I read his, the first part of his multi-volume work on, um, on family specifically and marriage specifically. And he says that surveying all of the anthropological data, that it is very clear that marriage exists for children and not vice versa. Right? That marriage is oriented. The, re the reason why societies recognize marriage is because of children. Right? Now, this is interesting because in our day and age, we've sort of, and especially around the, although not exclusively, around the debate 
to do with gay marriage. Um, we've, we've left off this, this argument that marriage should be defined by procreation. But again, that's not the exclusive reason why we've done that. Um, there, of course, there are marriages that, where there is no children. Um, and so some people would argue that we can't define marriage procreationally because of that. Um, better thinkers throughout history, though, have recognized some of these exceptions, and um, and and I mean, they, and they're they're serious, they're lamentable, they're uh, especially when a couple desires to have children cannot. That's um, that can be very very hurtful. The reason, however, that it's so hurtful is because it's normative, right? That it actually it actually is is it actually proves the point when you have these exceptions. Um, so I believe, I believe the church needs to get back to arguing that marriage is oriented towards and for children. And the one flesh union, as it, um, as it defines marriage and as marriages engage in that one flesh sexual union, it is procreational in its function even though it does not always result in procreation. Um, so this is, this is important. Uh, it, really, it really helps to ground and define what marriage is. Um, if you were here in our last couple of lectures, you will note that we developed some, some triads that had to do with male and female and how it is that God's strengths, aspects of his, his attributes and his characteristics are, are imaged differentially in male and female. Both male and female made fully in the image of God, but, but imaging God in different ways. And uh, if, you, you know, if you were following that, it wouldn't surprise you then to understand that there are some asymmetries to marriage as well as some symmetries, all right? So what are the symmetries? Well, husband and wife should both love each other um, and not just have a nice warm feeling towards one another, although that's good too, but they should actively uh, engage in each other's good. Right, so so you know we could say things like love is you've got a you've got a symmetry there. Both husband and wife should should love one another. Um, we could you know we could develop these symmetries in a considerable way. Uh, one of the reasons I'm not going to spend too much time doing so is that really these things are simply a matter of uh, of of Christian character, the development of godliness in each of our lives oriented towards somebody who's the closest to us. Um, and so I'm not going to spend too much time on these things. I hope and trust that as we are in the word of God, that as we are growing as Christians in Christ through our, you know, our daily disciplines and through um, being part of a covenant community, that, that church under the preaching of God's word, that these things are developing in, uh, in some of these symmetrical ways. I want to lean a little bit more into the asymmetries. How is it that male and female may have some, some different parts to play in 
within the marriage. Now, if you weren't here with us in our last lecture, I, I built uh, a significant foundation for this already, and I'm not going to be repeating um, what I was speaking about in that last lecture. But I do want us to consider the fact that um, that in the in the aspects of the the triads that we developed, namely that uh, let's see if I have them all here. Make sure I get them correctly. Um, I have them written down here somewhere. I'll have to go by by my memory, which is which is better anyways, right? Just make sure I get it right here. Um, I'm still looking for it, but uh, the the male triad um, was to promote, to protect, which is that inward, and then to provide. Okay, promote, uh, protect, and provide. And then in regards to uh, to women, I I mentioned that the triad is uh, that they that women are resplendent. We talked about glory and beauty uh, as part of that. That they are um, responsive. Was that the last part of the triad? A responsive was the last part, and then the middle one was restful. Um, so, so there's there's some of the um, the breakdown of those triads. But what I want you to think about is how males in, in the marriage, the husband, is to initiate and the woman is to respond, right? And this is not, these are not exclusive categories. It is not as if a woman never initiates, you know, a, a male never responds. Um, you know, I want my daughter to marry a man who is responsive. <laughs> Nevertheless, the, there are these asymmetries that exist that are helpful to recognize. And, and what, the, what it does is it really, um, pictures some truths about the Trinity, that the father towards his son is the initiator. He initiates giving to his son a, a people, uh, a throne, uh, really all of creation that is created through him and for him and in him holds together. So with this as a basis, it's not really surprising that this asymmetry begins to be worked out in ways that, uh, for instance, you get language like the language of headship and submission. So I'm going to ask you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. So in Ephesians chapter 5, reading from verse 22, um, many of you will be familiar with this passage, but, but note the heavenly realities reflected within the, uh, the earthly relationships. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. 
In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Of course, we're quoting from Genesis 2. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects, she respects her husband. So here you have, uh, again, some asymmetries. If you go back to verse 21, I think that you could argue whether or not it's the main um, object of the exhortation. When it says submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, that may be a, a more global uh, exhortation that's not meant specifically for marriage, yet you would say that that is a general principle that would hold within marriage. There is a sense in which husband and wife submit to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. But there's also an asymmetry in the sense that as it is broken down within the marriage, wives are particularly said that they should submit to their husbands as to the Lord, and husbands, and they're, they're the one who are, who's being spoken to in um, you know, most, most clearly in the greatest breadth here, they are to sacrifice themselves, they are to serve, they are to sanctify, um, they are the ones that, that are to mimic Christ in their self-giving. Um, and, and just to go back to the last part of the triad, um, when it comes to, to marriage and this aspect of procreation, what we see is that it is other-oriented, that marriage is predominantly other-oriented. So if our, if our triad is covenant, one flesh, this one flesh relationship, and then family or, or procreation, we, would all, we could also say kind of together with that, uh, define marriage as being permanent, because it's a covenant, as being exclusive, because it's a one flesh relationship and is being other oriented because it is um, for procreation or family. And once you have this in place, this vision, this biblical vision, um, scriptural vision of marriage, you find that, that the, the, you know, the, the pagan twisting of marriage within our world is uh, really, it, it, it undermines this, and, and this rules out these sorts of perversions. So, for instance, um, you've got the common phrase these days that, you know, love is love, right? Wonder, you know, it's great they use this, this word, love. But the truth of the matter is that when it comes to gay marriage, it is not predominantly other-oriented. Uh, it is not, it cannot be oriented towards procreation. Now, of course, through, you know, surrogacy and IVF and, and, and some other means, you know, you do have um, gay marriages where there are, there are children. And of course, sometimes through, you know, remarriages, et cetera, as well. But, um, but gay marriage fails all of these tests. 
Um, in regards to a covenant, they can make a covenant with one another, but they can't make a covenant in, in good conscience before God. It, Malachi 2 says, I'm, I'm bearing witness of this covenant. Well, you can't, you can't have a gay marriage without rejecting God's design uh, and that covenant. You can't have a one flesh relationship. You can engage in what's called sexual conduct. But as we, as we looked at, at how marriage are, is, um, and, and male and female were created to not just be a pair, um, but they were created dyadic, that they are to face one another, that they are, to, they are for each other, that that is imaged in the sexual relationship as they come together. And I mean, even biologically, you could, you could get quite a ways um, you know, in this argument, just even dealing with biology, say, as an evolutionist, right? I mean, clearly, male and male are not designed for procreation. They don't fit. And then, of course, procreation, family, uh, other-oriented. And you see this, you know, you see this even in um, subtle ways that the way people, many people approach marriage is it's, it's something that's going to fulfill us and it's going to show our romantic love for one another. And, and then when these things wear off, uh, of course, the, the marriage uh, often in our culture so often dissolves. So um, marriage is a covenant before God. It is a one flesh sexual relationship. And in fact, it is to be carried on as uh, a regular sexual relationship. Um, this is why all throughout scriptures, whenever it addresses the marriage relationship, uh, it addresses it as uh, a sexual relationship. In fact, in the history of, of, uh, of theology, uh, you would often have theologians speaking. Now, you know, we like, we like to use euphemisms when it comes to the sexual act. I understand. I, you know, I, I, in the next lecture, I'll probably speak a little bit more frankly about the sexual act. I don't like doing that. We tend to use euphemisms, but throughout Christian uh, theological history, often uh, theologians have called the sexual act marriage. They, they just, it, it, it's, the, it's the same idea. That's, that's what defines the marriage. It's far more than merely the coming together, but that comprehensive union which incorporates body, soul, uh, spirit, that this is uh, what God has, has created to come together that there might be an imaging of him in the world as it bears out other-oriented out into procreation. And in our next lecture, we will deal with how this goes wrong in our world. We're going to deal with sexual ethics and sexual immorality. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Joshua Lectures series on sex, gender, and the image of God. You can find more lectures by going to newantiochinstitute.com and click on the tab Joshua Lectures or by finding us on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform by searching for Proelium. If you'd like to know more about New Antioch Institute, you can email us at admin at newantiochinstitute.com. Thanks very much. Take care.